So we're going to go ahead and get rolling um, tonight, and uh, we um, are going to open in a word of prayer. Um, I know we're missing some people this evening, um, but we're hoping, uh, I'm hoping to be able to get through chapter 12. Um, I know we were partway into it or a few verses in, so I'm hoping to cover chapter 12 and chapter 13. And then with the time remaining, um, we're going to do something a little bit different to close this out this evening. Um, and once we get to that point, um, I will I'll fill us in. And so um, let's go ahead and go to the Lord uh, in prayer tonight and, um, and just kind of kick off. So Heavenly Father, uh, we come to you in this place and we just thank you uh, for uh, the word that we are about to read tonight. Um, God, you are challenging us to grow and change in how uh, we think um, and how we live every single day as your children and, and your disciples. And so, Lord, I'm, I'm asking tonight that you um, would give us a different heart uh, perspective for a different heart posture. Uh, as we begin to unpack a little bit more um, the benchmarks of a, of a Christian uh, and then how that applies to us, but Lord, even uh, diving into chapter 13 of the book of Romans and how a Christian should handle uh, the governmental authority around us. And so, Lord, I'm asking for um, open ears in this place to hear from you. I'm, opening, uh, I'm asking for um, open eyes as we read uh, your word and that it would burn off of the pages, Lord, and, and burn into uh, the hearts and minds of, of us who are here this evening and even those who may be uh, listening or following along um, in the days to come as this is posted online. Uh, so Lord, we pray um, for your glorification to come through tonight um, in every aspect. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. So real quick, I just want to recap uh, chapter 12 because it's been a couple of weeks, I guess, now at this point um, in which we started chapter 12. And, and we, we looked at a couple of different things here uh, to kick us off, we talked about uh, the difference between unity and diversity, and, and we began to dive into uh, what Paul's charge was um, to the Christian uh, about having a renewed mind, and, and what does that look like, um, and how do we discern the will of God in our lives. And so uh, tonight we're just going to pick up in verse number six where we left off. Um, some of this may be a little bit of a rehash as we uh, kind of cover a verse or two that we already did, uh, but just want to get us started. So Romans 12, Romans 12, uh, we're going to start in verse number 6. And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to you, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So let's just hang tight because there's a lot to unpack there in those three verses. So the difference in the distribution of gifts is all due to the grace that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. So the spiritual gifts are not given on any basis of our own merit, but because God chooses to give them. We covered that uh, two weeks ago when we uh, walked through uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Now the idea here 
is related in the ancient is related to the ancient Greek word for spiritual gifts, and it's the word charismata, is where we get our English word charismatic, and that word charismata means a gift of grace, a gift of grace. Now that term was coined here by Paul to emphasize that the giving of the spiritual gifts was all by the grace of God. So spiritual gifts are given, like I covered a few weeks ago, at the discretion of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to just refresh us because 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11 says, But one and the same Spirit works all of these things, distributing each as He wills, as He wills. Knowing this should really cause or should be an insurmountable barrier to pride uh, in the human in the exercise of those spiritual gifts. So man in the depravity of his heart, will always find a way to be proud about spiritual gifts and insists on, and it insists on exalting man for how God has gifted them. And we need to be very careful uh, in that, knowing that that gift did not come because of something that I did or performed, but because God's grace allowed for, for me to be the vessel or the tool in which that gift was used. Now, the first thing that he mentions here is prophecy. He says, if prophecy, right? So prophecy, Paul says, must be practiced in proportion to our faith. So what does that mean, right? God may give us something to say to an individual or a church body that stretches our faith. Now, if we can't prophesy in faith and trust that God has really spoken to us, then we shouldn't speak it at all. Um, We shouldn't speak it at all. We are reminded here in Scripture that prophecy in the Bible and in the biblical understanding of prophecy isn't necessarily foretelling in a strictly predictive sense. Uh, You guys tracking with me so far? Because I don't want you to get lost on on this word prophecy, okay? It's not, not strictly foretelling. It's not strictly predictive when we hear or see the word prophecy. Not saying that it's not ever, but it's not strictly that right? So the word prophecy in the Bible, in the biblical sense, is more accurately what we would call forth-telling. Forth-telling. It means that we are speaking the heart and the mind of God, which may or may not include predictive aspects. It may or may not. So this warns us, really here in Scripture, uh, to not use uh, this gift as uh, a flippant tool, right? To, to have streams of consciousness, prophecy that has no difficulty saying, thus says the Lord at the drop of a hat. So this is, this is where we have to use great caution. Great caution. Um, I was actually reading an article this morning uh, about how our, our culture has come very quickly to a place uh, where many pastors and or quote-unquote uh, modern-day prophets and apostles will use the phrase, the Lord told me, and then fill in the blank with something, right? And oftentimes, uh, we know uh, those things uh, either don't come to fruition or they don't align with Scripture, right? So I'm going to just, I'm not going to throw out names, but I'm going to throw out a couple of more recent things that occurred. So let's take it back a couple of years, Right? There were some people in our culture that threw out there like the Lord told me that so-and-so was going to become our next president or so-and-so was going to do this or this was going to happen or th- and then it didn't occur. So those things there are, are uses of what Paul is warning us against. 
Um, do not just throw out the, the, the line, thus says the Lord, or the Lord told me, in order to undergird something that you may not know that the Lord spoke. Which kind of goes back to a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about the gifts and how Satan has the ability and the power to attempt to imitate those things that are of Christ. And so we must use great caution uh, when, we, when we are to speak um, what the Lord is, is saying to us. Now Paul um, is cautioning that prophecy must be according to the faith, meaning in accords with the accepted body of doctrine uh, that is spoken about in the Bible. Meaning that if that doesn't align with Scripture, if it does not align with something that is in the Word of God, it cannot be of God. Is it, that's all he's saying. Is that it, it has to align with Scripture. Now, he then speaks of ministry. He says prophecy and then ministry. Now this has in view the broader picture of really just simply serving in practical ways uh, in the church context. It's just ministry. Now Paul sees this as an important ministry from the Holy Spirit as well, which is why it's grouped in here alongside of some of these other giftings. He then says teaching, right? This is, this is the instruction that is given. While exhortation encourages people to practice what they've been taught, both exhortation and teaching are necessary for a healthy Christian life. We, and we must never forget that in this walk. Uh, not only do we need to be taught, but we need to be exhorted as well. And that word exhortation in Scripture means to spur on or to stir up uh, somebody to do something, not just love and good works, as scripture says, and that is true, but if we go to the book of Hebrews, he adds an addendum really to more than just to stir people up to love and good works. He asks them, that word exhortation is to get people to do what is right and not do what is wrong as well. So it's more of, it's more of like an encouragement yet challenge. Right? How many of you understand what I mean when I say encouragement, yet ch I'm being challenged still uh, within that? Right. And so those who are taught but not exhorted become fat sheep. Now, I, don't, I don't mean that in a, in a bad sense. But that's, that's what, if you, if you are taught but you are never encouraged to actually go out and do, then you become fat sheep. Right? Uh, you only take in but you never actually live out what you're taught. But those who are just encouraged, and they're never ever taught scripture at all, you're just encouraged, you become excited and active, but then you end up with very little depth of the word of God. You, you end up with very little understanding to what to do and what happens, but you quickly get burned out with the Christian life. You quickly find yourself in a place where you're like, hey, I was chugging along and two or three or four weeks in or, or two or three months in to living this certain way, man, it's getting exhausted. Man, my flesh is creeping up every which way and I don't know how to combat it. There's all of these temptations and I don't know what to do with it. And so those are the two ditches really uh, that bring out, in my opinion, another, another portion of scripture that talks about having balance in the believer's life. Um, you need to be exhorted, yes, but not all exhortation. You need to be taught, but not all teaching. You need a balance of both in order to walk uh, a balanced life here on this earth. Now, the, 
the thing that's awesome here in Scripture that we see from Paul is it, it, he says, he who gives. He's talking about whom? Who is Paul talking about? Right, he who gives refers to the someone who is a channel through who God provides resources for the body. And it's not always necessarily going to fall on the shoulders of the pastor. Uh, oftentimes it falls on the shoulders of, of the other people in the church body, right? So um, I love going and talking about Ephesians chapter 4 because my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, right? And so I don't know if you remember the very first week we met for the Romans Bible study, I made a very clear statement to us before we even dove into this chapter or into the, this book at all, that my whole purpose for Wednesday nights was to equip you to do the work of ministry. Not because I want to be lazy and never do ministry, but because I can't bear the weight of ministry alone. I need other people who are willing to shoulder that with me. And so this Wednesday night a gathering time that we have where we're here is to equip you to deepen your understanding uh, of the things of God, but then also to charge you to actually put it into practice outside of the four walls here of the church. But God says, he who gives, he who leads, and this one must show diligence. This one must show diligence. You know, it's easy for uh, for the leaders in the church to become discouraged and feel like giving up at times in ministry. Like that's, that's totally normal. Um, I've talked to people here in this church even uh, that were like, man, I'm getting tired because of, and then fill in the blank with whatever it is. And it is easy to feel like giving up, but we must persevere if we will please God by our leadership, like we must persevere and it pleases God when we, when we turn to him. Uh, but in, in that also, it's also the one who shows mercy and that, that gift um, of mercy, he says, needs cheerfulness. It is the gift of mercy done with cheerfulness. And, and I just, I have a question. How many of you find it hard at times uh, to show mercy? I'm not, not asking for the specific situation, but it's hard enough to show mercy, but in my, my opinion, it's even harder to be cheerful about showing mercy. Um, it's hard. It's hard, especially when, when the person that you have to show mercy to in your eyes doesn't deserve mercy, especially in that moment. Like, it's hard to be cheerful about being merciful to other people. And it reminds us, really, that the gift of showing mercy is a supernatural gift of the Spirit. It can't be man-made or man-manipulated. Why? Because it will be ingenuine. Uh, there will be no authenticity to it um, if it comes from us alone. So now look with me at verse number 9, because now Paul is going to begin to give some brief instructions to us, right? So like we've had all of these chapters of doctrine. We've been inundated with the depth of God's word. And now he's going to give some, some brief instructions on how to live like a Christian. Now put these things to practice. And this section is going to show us one thing clearly that Paul knew the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. So look at verse number nine. He says... Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. 
love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Weren't we just talking about being hospitable? Um, You know, we as Christians are now given this charge here in Scripture. This is how we are to live this life. Now, uh, of course, love... Uh, with uh, love alongside of hypocrisy is not real love here. And he starts out by saying, let, let love be genuine. You know, much of what masquerades as love in the Christian community is laced with hypocrisy and must be demonstrated against. And so the believer is to, to love genuinely, and that love only comes through whom? God. That's right. Through the example that God has given to us in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is what allows for love to come. Now, this next piece has always been one of my favorites in Scripture. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, in some ways, it's often easier for the Christian to either abhor what is evil or to cling to what is good rather than doing both of them at the same time. I found in my own personal life, and I don't know about you, but I have found that one piece to be very difficult. To, to hate evil, right? That word abhor means to hate or, or to loathe. To hate what is evil and cling to what is good. It's difficult at times to do both of those at the exact same time. But the godly person knows how to practice both of them. To hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. Now, he also says to be kindly affectionate to one another. Now, this is a command here in Scripture. It's a command that is given to us in Scripture that Christians should not be cold or standoffish is really what he's talking about. To be cold or standoffish in the attitude in which we present ourselves. Now, we should see this or see in this as much as anything a call really to simply have good manners. Just to be a good-mannered or a well-mannered individual uh, among not just Christians, but among even those who are non-believers. Now, if we're called here in Scripture to warm relations and good manners, we also know that we are called to hard work in that. You know, the, the church, he says, is no place for laziness. Um, do not be slothful. And, and the call to hope usually has in mind our ultimate reward, which is Jesus Christ. So don't be lazy and rejoice in hope. Don't be lazy, right? Don't, don't lose your fervency for the things of Christ. And Paul says we serve God rejoicing in hope, not rejoicing in results. Um, how many of you in here are uh, like me in the sense that at times you can be results-driven? Results driven, right? There, there's a few of us in here. Like you, you put in the work or you planned and you planned and you planned. Now you want to see the thing come to fruition and see the results that you had in your mind uh, that should happen. But Paul is saying we should just rejoice and hope when we do what we know is good. When we do what we know is right. When we have hated evil, we've clung to the thing that is good. And it shows really how we are commanded to do these things with our eyes towards heaven with our eyes towards heaven. 
You know, this is how we fulfill the command for hope and for patience and steadfastness and character right here. We keep our eyes on Christ. Uh, we never forget that everything is around us, right, is leading us toward eternality. Um, I'm, I'm, not, um, um, I'm not home yet. My eyes are constantly on where my home is. Now, he also adds to that same list, though, that we must be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Difficult times in the Christian life do not excuse us when we abandon hope or we abandon patience or we abandon continued steadfastness and prayer. Trials do not excuse a lack of love in the body of Christ or even a lack of willingness to do the work of Christ. And so he says, like, be, be hospitable. Um, and it's funny because just before service, uh, we were laughing and joking about being hospitable. But that word hospitality is literally translated in English as a love for strangers. A love for strangers. And the idea is that we have, that we have or we are uh, pursuing people that we don't know with hospitality. Like this is love in action, not just love in quote-unquote feeling. This is love in action, not just in feeling. Now look at verse number 14. Um, how does this relate to those outside of the Christian family? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, that's a mouthful. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. You know, we are not to have a hateful attitude towards anyone, not even towards those who persecute us. Um, do not curse. Jesus spoke of the same heart in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 46, he said, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? But he says, do not, even, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Do not even the tax collectors have that behavior? You know, the, the surpassing greatness of the love of Jesus in us is shown and that it can be extended even to our enemies, not just to the people closest to us. So bless those, do not curse them, those who persecute you. Well, who are the people who persecute you? Okay, enemies would be one category, sure. Non-Christians would encapsulate that whole group of people that Paul is talking about. Uh, not all persecution, though, comes from outside the church. Not all persecution. Jesus told us the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. Um, in John chapter 16, I believe, is where it's found. And so Paul is saying, be, be affectionate, love, bless those who persecute you. Not just non-believers, but even believers who do it. So look at verse 15. Then he says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. 
for by so doing you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not become, or do not be overcome, sorry, by evil, but overcome evil with good. And this right here is how we can fulfill the command to be of the same mind as that which was in Christ. This right here is exactly how we do it. It is a simple command to be considerate of the feelings of others instead of waiting for them to be considerate of your feelings. Uh, Paul cautions the, the Christian to have a humble mindset in every single thing that we do. And in refusing to set our minds on high things and associating with humility, we simply are imitating Christ. We're just simply imitating Christ in doing so. Do not be wise in your own opinions here is another way of what Paul is saying to remind us of how far we still actually have to go in being like Jesus. Like that's, that's a difficulty uh, to repay no one evil for evil is really just a command that Christ gave, again, referencing back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, that we are to love our enemies and treat, those, treat well those who treat us badly. Um, you know, people, people really should be able to see what is good and what is not based upon the conduct of the Christian. And we are, are supposed to be, not saying that it always occurs, but the Bible tells us that we are to be in contrast to that of, of the world, meaning that we do not seek out contention purposefully in this life. Not saying that it will never come, but we don't seek it out. And he says, if it is possible, we will be at peace with all men, if, if it is possible. Now, it indicates to us that that may not always be possible. It may not. The one, though, the one who trusts God will not think it necessary to avenge themselves in the situation. We won't think it necessary. In fact, we will come to a place in our life where we will leave the issue of vengeance in the hands of God, giving no place to my own or your own wrath. Well, what happens? We then are giving a wide place to the wrath of God, saying, I don't want any piece of it. And when we begin to take that mindset, we will do a good to our enemies, looking for the most practical ways that we can to help them. This is the way that we are to not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, is by looking at practical ways to help them, right? And so, let me just throw out this question. Is the, the whole phrase, the heaping of coals of fire upon one's head, something good in the eyes of our enemy, or is it something bad? Sure. When, when Paul says that it will heap coals of fire upon his head, is that something that is good in the eyes of our enemy, or is that something that is bad? Yep. Okay. Who else wants to add to that? Yeah, Amy, go ahead. Yeah. So this is where I was hoping that somebody would bring up, right? So Paul right here is actually talking about burning conviction with inside of uh, the enemy here, right? We often have heard and seen this picture of like, man, there's some, something that bad that happens to them because we were, no, Paul is saying there's a, a burning conviction that our kindness now has placed 
upon the one who has persecuted us, the one who is considered the enemy. And he's saying that this right here is, is to allow for our enemies to be convicted and then changed. Reformed would, was a great word that you use because of it. Now, there are some, though, um, who, who look at this portion of Scripture and think that the practice of lending coals from a fire to help a neighbor really to start their own is the way that some people would unpack it. Like, I'm, I'm giving you something in return that is good, something that is to help you. Um, and out of that comes, uh, comes conviction because of an appreciated act of kindness when really they were probably expecting something completely different. And so then let me ask this question really as an addendum to what was already spoken. And please, please don't incriminate yourself here. When was the last time in our lives that we blessed the one who persecuted us? Don't answer out loud. I just want you to think. And I'm, ta I'm not talking like they came to you and they said something to you and you were just like, oh, okay, and then you just, no, I'm talking about when, where, when did I go out of my way to show Christ to somebody who persecuted me? When did I go out of my way to overcome evil by doing something that was good um, in, in a certain situation? Now turn with me to chapter number 13 because there's a reason why Paul addressed these topics and then went to chapter number 13. The, the chapter in scripture that is all about a Christian's obligation to the government. Uh, the Christian's obligation to the government. Now, this is a short, a short chapter, but it's packed with a lot of stuff that I think... Um, in our day and age, is probably one of the most perfect portions of Scripture to help us understand uh, where we fall in line um, and what is our duty um, here in this culture in regards to um, our government. So, let's look at verse number one. Let every person be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So stop right there. That's a lot already out of the gate here in talking about our government. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. Yes, that's so good. Yes. Yeah, she... You want me to repeat or you want to raise your... Yeah, so she was just saying about what Jesus had spoken to Pilate about how he would not have his authority. Pilate would not have his authority unless it had been given uh, to him. Um, in Jesus' trial, and I'm actually going to bring up another piece of, of coming to that, uh, the authority there with Pilate. Now, the connection between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is extremely clear and we shouldn't miss it here. If the Christian is not to seek personal vengeance, okay, it does not take away the government's authority to punish wrongdoers uh, in breaking civil law. Now, this certainly includes Christians, 
okay? Christians are still included in that. Now, Paul simply says that we should be subject to the governing authority that has been placed over our lives. Now, the reason he spoke this was because this is, a con- this is in contrast, like stark contrast to the group of zealous Jews in that day who recognized no king but God and they paid no taxes to nobody except for God. Now, we are, are subject ourselves to the governing authority because they are appointed by God and they serve a purpose in God's plan in some way. Now, that means that God appoints a nation's leader, but not always to bless the people, okay? And I think this is what we miss a lot in Christian circles. God does not always appoint a leader to bless them. Sometimes it's really to judge the people or really to ripen the nation for the coming judgment of God upon them. And so, We have to remember that Paul wrote this during the reign of the Roman Empire, meaning that there was no democracy like we see democracy today, if we could even call it democracy. But there was nothing even remotely close to the type of government system that we had. And there were the the government system, uh, the, the Roman Empire was no friend to the Christian at all. And yet he, Paul, still saw through the the inspiration of the Spirit, saw the, the empire's legitimate authority over the people. Like Christ, and I'm grateful that you brought this up because Christ suffered under Pilate, who was one of the, the worst Roman governors that Judea had ever seen in Scripture. And Paul himself um, was was one who suffered under Nero, who was the worst Roman emperor of that day. And neither Christ nor Paul denied or reviled the authority that was given to the people over them. Neither one of them. And since governments have authority from God, we are bound to obey them unless. This is the caveat, right? Unless the government orders us to do something that contradicts the law of God. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, so um, I have a lot to say on the topic of uh, church and government. Uh, We are commanded most clearly in Acts chapter 4 to obey God before man, but God does use governing authorities as a check upon man's sinfulness and their man's desires and man's tendencies. So when, when... Um, there is, let's just say, I'm going to use the word, uh, assault, uh, when there is an, and I don't mean physically, um, in some cases it could come to that, but when there is an assault on, uh, Christianity, um, in an attempt to, uh, silence, uh, the word of God going forth in an attempt to, uh, get churches to close their doors, um, in an attempt to get churches to, um, officiate and participate in things that would clearly go against Scripture. Um, it is our it is our um, duty uh, to hold fast to Scripture um, and to respectfully speak against. Um, 
Now, and I, and I use that term respectfully in a very large capacity or in a very huge sense because nowhere in Scripture are, are we condemned from peacefully protesting. Um, I'm not going to stand before you and try to politicize the Bible. Um, in my personal opinion, um, I don't believe peaceful protesting is wrong. I believe that protesting that with the intent of harm um, or evil towards somebody is unbiblical and sinful. I'm a totally, I totally believe that. And we are, we, I, I believe it is our position as Christians um, to, to speak against that which would call us um, to contradict that which we believe from Scripture. I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, I think there are necessary ways that we could go about that um, in better and more organized fashions than in others. Um, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. I mean, I guess let's kind of linger there for just a moment because, you know, I had, um, I had, I've had multiple conversations with people over the last, I would say really two, two and a half years um, of just Christian life, ministry life. And um, I've seen both sides of it. Um, and our, I believe wholeheartedly our government is doing everything that they can uh, to slowly um, tr attempt to uh, to help the church to disintegrate, to get rid of, to completely do away with the church. Um, unless they're willing to bow down to the government's wishes, I, I wholeheartedly could see us going that way. In fact, Scripture tells us that it it's only going to get worse. Um, I mean, we for those of you who went through the Revelation Bible study, um, that is a great portion of scripture to go back and reference. Like there, there are things that are coming. And um, at the same time, um, I just lost my train of thought. <sighs> yeah, I, 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 believe, um, I believe that there are a lot of things in which the government says um, and requests of its people uh, to do, the people that they do govern, that don't contradict the word of God, and yet people are more concerned with their civil liber liberties than they are anything else. And so th there's a very fine line that has to be um, walked in doing that, right? So um, nowhere in scripture are we um, told to, um, to fight for X, Y, and Z um, to do with our First Amendment right and our Second Amendment. Now, they, those rights are there and put in place to protect uh, those things from being taken away from us as citizens here. But, um, and I'm just, this is not to start an argument or a fight, but I'm going to throw out something uh, which will not be debated, but I'm going to throw out uh, the usage of masks and no masks. Um, oh, it was mandated by our government to wear masks, but a mandate is not a law that was put into place where you could be put in jail because you broke said law. There are people who believed that masks worked. We found out months into it that masks do not work, um, and there are many things that are out about them. 
Now, is it wrong if you wore a mask or if you didn't wear a mask? In my opinion, to each his own in that matter. It has nothing to do with my salvation. It has nothing to go against in Scripture. Now, are we told to love uh, other people? Um, yes, we're told in chapter 15 when we get there that we are to bear w- with those of a weaker faith. Uh, we are Yes, we are told all of those things. Uh, but I think a lot of things were just mishandled. A lot of it was a misinformation. A lot of it was personal preference. And, and if we read in Scripture, personal preference was what destroyed churches in the New Testament. Um, it's destroying churches now. Um, in fact, I was going to um, talk a little bit on Sunday. Uh, this coming Sunday, we have Communion Sunday. And um, uh, the portion of Scripture in which we read for communion is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that the, the Christians had so much personal preference that they had literally walked away from God. They were causing divisions in the church because of personal preference. And so in my, like where I stand as a pastor and as, as one who would never want to stray away from the word of God, there are things in which our government asks us to do that I don't believe we, we are, our, our, our biblical standing with God is not being infringed in all the ways that we perceive it to be infringed upon. I guess if I could just say it that way. And so we have to use great caution as Christians because guess what? you could easily lose your testimony over something that you shouldn't even be fighting. There's, there's no cause in Scripture that, that the Bible commands us uh, to fight for from our current cultural context. Um, and so we just have to use great caution in that. Um, and so that's, that's just kind of what I will say. Anybody have anything they would like to add or questions based upon what I just said? Okay. Now... Um, the government, uh, we see all throughout history uh, that government can be an effective tool in resisting the effects of man's fallenness, right? That's why we have laws. That's why uh, certain things are put into place to protect man. In fact, our legal system, uh, not all of it anymore, but our legal system today, the current legal system that we have was founded and based upon Leviticus and Deuteronomy out of Scripture. Now, our government would never tell you that, but it was based upon the Bible, biblical law. And if, if you ever have an opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and tour the Capitol building, uh, I want to say there are some 140-something um, scriptural or biblical related things that are still engraved into the stone of that building um, and it was done by the early church uh, the early founding fathers when the buildings were created it was etched in stone so it couldn't be removed without taking the building down um, and so like there are there are still scripture and biblical things etched into our government buildings and so uh, I think that um, we shouldn't believe everything that we hear on the, on the news. And I don't think we should believe everything that we read on the internet. And I think we need to have more discernment um, in the church uh, than anything. That's, that's my rant. <laughs> that's my rant for tonight. Now, what is the job, though, of the government? Look at verse number three. He says, for rulers are not a terror to good, uh, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, 
uh, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for the wrongdoer. Now stop right there before you get to five. So Paul's idea here is that Christians should be the best citizens of all. That even though they are loyal to God, before they are loyal to the state, Christians are still to be good citizens because they are to be honest, they are to give no trouble to the state, they are to pay their taxes, and most importantly, they are to pray for their state um, and the rulers over them, so the people who are in authority over them. Now, Paul is describing government officials here in, in the original context as God's ministers. Now, before you kind of get haywire on the term ministers, it's really uh, one who is placed there by God. Uh, they have a ministry um, in, a, in the plan and the administration of God just as much as a church leader does. And so if the state's rulers, as servants of God, they should remember that they are only servants and not gods themselves, which is the trouble in most government systems. They try to take or, or uh, bring about more power within themselves than they should. Now, when the government fails to do this consistently, when they fail to punish the evil um, around the world, they serve, as they serve, they begin to hold on to man's sinful tendencies, and they're never in check. And when that happens, it opens up the, the judgment of God and God's correction upon that nation because they're not fulfilling the role in which um, God allowed them to be. Now, the sword here is a reference to capital punishment. Now, I'm not, I'm not here, and some of these things, it's not, I'm not really open to debating them, um, not, especially not in this form. If you want to have a conversation with me about it afterwards, I'd be more than willing to talk with you. But the sword here was a reference to capital punishment, saying that the Roman Empire um, had the authority to use um, execution as a way of punishment for criminals. And in fact, in that day and age, um, having, having your head be, like beheaded, um, beheadings were the natural um, play of execution uh, for the hardened and, and the most um, scariest of criminals in that day and age. In fact, crucifixion was the only thing worse than a beheading. Um, and crucifixion was reserved for, uh, for the worst people. Um, and so Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has no doubt that the state has the legitimate authority to execute criminal, criminals based upon what they have done wrong. Now, I'm not saying that every single person that is a criminal should be executed, so please don't hear that. That's not what the Word of God says. But the Word of God states that the state, the government, has the authority to decide. Now look at what, though, the Christian's responsibility is in verse number 5. Right, so we've heard what the, the government is supposed to do. So verse number 5 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities, our ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Now, he says, pay, in verse 7, to all what is owed to them, Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Now, we must be subject to the government, not only because we fear punishment, but because we know it's right before God to do what is right. And so Christian obedience to the state is never blind. And this kind of comes back 
to uh, what we were talking about. It obeys, now, with the eyes of your conscience wide open. Wide open. We are to also pay taxes that are due from us because there is no sense in which we support God's work when we do so. If we avoid paying uh, the governmental authority which is over us, uh, then we are, in, in a sense, not paying uh, that which is due, meaning that we are not paying for uh, God's work. In a, in, it's hard to view it that way. But by implication, Romans chapter 13, verse 6, says that the taxes collected are to be used by governments to get the job done of restraining evil. Okay, It is to keep an orderly society, not to enrich the government officials themselves. Okay? We are to give the state the money, the honor, and the reverence or respect that they are due, all the while reserving our right to give God that which is due to God alone, according to Matthew 22. So, now I'm going to ask this question. In light of everything that we've heard up to this point, is rebellion against the government ever justified? <laughs> sure so it what were you going to say were you going to say something okay were you going to say something sure right I would say no so I was I was going to throw this out there if a citizen has a choice between two governments it is right to choose and to promote the one that is the most legitimate in God's eyes, meaning the one which will best fulfill God's purposes according to his word for the government. Um, and so I use the word rebellion not really as a, a trick, but I used it because that's the way that it's seen in our culture. When we don't Right, so when you don't do what you have been asked, you have rebelled. When you do the opposite of, or you do something different, you have rebelled against what you have been asked. So, <laughs> sure, sure, sure. In democracy, we understand that there's a sense in which we are the government as the people and we should not hesitate to help govern our democracy here in this culture uh, because our democracy is done through our participation in the democratic process. Yeah, go ahead. Sure. what Paul is Paul saying that we shouldn't use our guns to overthrow the government I I would well that gets this gets into kind of a a touchy subject because if if we want to talk about if we want to talk about give me just a second and I'll call on you if we want to talk about um the rights that we have as American citizens, as, as United States citizens, 
we want to get into the rights in which we have. Yes, there are rights that were given to us by our founding fathers, which real quick, just throwing this out there, our founding fathers were not Christians. They were deists, okay? They were deists. The founding fathers believed in theistic evolution, that God created all things, but then he has no sovereignty and power over those things after he created them. And so though a lot of deist principles align with Christianity because they stem from the same place, um, our, our founding fathers were not quote-unquote Christian according to what the Bible says. They, don't, they didn't believe the same way that we do. That doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that what the principles that they put in front of us that are still being held today as law are wrong or bad. In fact, I thought, in, in my opinion, they, they did a great job putting and structuring in what it should be. But nowhere in Scripture as a Christian um, is our right to bear arms protected. Um, it is in this country, um, but nowhere as a citizen of Christ does it say that we have to defend our right to, to hold guns. Listen, I know guns are not everybody's cup of tea. I love guns. I have guns. I don't, I don't run around flaunting it and be like, hey, I have, I'm the gun guy. And I'm, do I, do I, am I going to sit and argue and fight with somebody? No. I, I, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not that important. In the grand scheme of things, um, it's really not that important. Um, and so I don't believe that Paul um, had some premonition that we were going to be arguing about gun rights 2,000 years into the future. Um, but I believe wholeheartedly, give me just a second, I believe wholeheartedly that he, um, that, that he wants for us to only go against government if they are asking us to do something that would fly in the face of, of the Bible. Go ahead. And then Kim. Sure. Okay. What were you going to say? <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Sure, sure. No, I, I would, I would, I would definitely agree. There's, there's a time and a place. Um, I believe, which is goes back to what I was saying a little bit ago, right? There are a lot of things that we could do that could cause us to lose our testimony uh, because we have gotten involved in a way. Um, if, if there's going to be something, I, I should never put myself in a situation where I could lose self control because then I'm no longer being led by the Spirit. The moment that I'm not displaying self-control is I'm no longer being led by the Spirit. 
And so, um, listen, I, I'm, I'm all about uh, liberty here in this country. This is what the country was founded on, uh, was liberty and protection for its people and its citizens. Um, but there's a lot of, a, a lot of use and abuse uh, from our governmental powers. And so, um, listen, I, I'm all for, for our rights. I, I, I get it, and I, I want to be, you know, right there. And, but there are just some things that I'm not going to champion because I just don't see it necessary. Um, and I'm not saying that it will never do good to champion because, listen, I, I will promote the sanctity of life until the day that I die. I'll promote marriage as one man and one woman until the day that I die. I, like, I, I understand it. I get it. Um, but I, I really think that if we invested more of our time into evangelism and discipleship, more, more people would come to know the Lord. And I think that a lot of the issues and problems and differences that we have in our culture um, can and will be resolved uh, with the word of God. And we must always, always, always remember, never forget the battle has already been won. Um, so things are going to get worse, but in the end, Christ prevails. <laughs> like, he's already prevailed. But in the end, uh, in the end, Satan, Satan is, is thrown away <laughs> in, in the lake of fire. Um, and, and so how do we best, um, how do we best display um, not just love, and I love what you said, right, because we, we are to be a people of justice, um, but... I don't believe that we get to pick and choose the avenues of justice that we follow. Um, I believe it should be justice for all people in all cases um, with the intent of leading those people, especially those who are lost, closer to Christ. Just Those are just my, my two cents. Um, so let's look now um, at verse number eight and let's try to wrap this up because I want to close this out with something here. Um, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up in the, uh, this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, on a, on a personal level here, the only debt we are to carry is the debt to love one another. Now, this is a perpetual obligation that we carry before God and before every other person that's created in the image of God. Now, some take this as a command to never borrow money, but Jesus permitted borrowing in passages like Matthew chapter 5, um, and a few other places. And so please don't misinterpret what Paul is saying here. This isn't the sense of, of what Paul is saying at all, though the scripture does remind us of the dangers and the obligations of owing people money, especially in the Old Testament. But Paul is echoing what Jesus recorded in Matthew chapter 22. And these are the two commandments, right? All of these things, these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. And to love your neighbor as yourself means to love the people that you actually meet with and you deal with on an everyday basis. Now it's easy for us to love in the theoretical or an abstract sense, but God demands that we actually love real people, like real people. And it's easy to do all of the right religious things but neglect love 
in the process. It's easy. And our love is really the only true measure of our obedience to God. It's our only true measure. Now look at verse number 11. Besides this, you know this time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, because we know the danger of the times that we live in, and we anticipate, um, I hope, I hope I, um, that you anticipate the soon returning of Christ. Um, we should be all the more energetic and committed to a right walk with God right now instead of what I'm going to call a sleepwalk with God. A sleepwalk with God. You know, how important is it to wake out of our sleep, right? especially right now, right? It's possible in this life uh, for many to, to do many Christian things and yet essentially be asleep towards God. So I wanted to know um, from a medical standpoint everything that could occur in somebody's sleep um, because I wanted us to get a very vivid picture here of what I was trying to talk about, right? So it's easy to do things and still, quote-unquote, be asleep towards God, right? Sometimes people talk in their sleep. Sometimes people hear things in their sleep. Sometimes people walk in their sleep. Sometimes people think in their sleep. That's what we call dreaming. Because one can do many religious things and still be asleep, are truly awake and active. Like what is truly awake and active in your life before God? We can do all of the right things and not have a right relationship with God, which is why Paul said to cast off the works of darkness and to put on the armor of light. And so for us, the illustration is from taking off and putting on clothes. When you get dressed every single morning, you dress appropriately to who you are and what you plan to do for the next several hours of your day. Therefore, every single day, the Christian should put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But why did he say you have to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light? Well, because you have to cast off something before you can put something else on in its place. You have to remove, you have to remove your, your bed clothes or the clothes you had on from the night before so you can put on clean, fresh clothes. And so the, think about it like this. The rags of sin from our former life have to come off so that we can put on the robes of Christ. They have to, the sin of the former life has to come off of us. It was, it was Charles Spurgeon that said that the works of darkness are the things that destroy the Christian, but it is the armor of light that changes the Christian into the image of Christ. And so they, the works of darkness are characterized by certain things. He, he said revelry uh, and drunkenness, licentiousness, lust, strife, envy. Now he's saying that these, these, this is not an all-inclusive list. He was just giving uh, some examples, but he's saying these things are not appropriate for Christians who have come out of the night, out of the darkness, and into God's light. Now, I want us to stop for a moment. Is there anyone in here who can tell me what the word licentiousness is? 
Yeah, it's the one who sets no value on sexual purity and fidelity. And it's the one who desires for something that is forbidden. Something that is forbidden. That's what licentiousness means. Uh, desire for something that is forbidden. One who has no value of purity or fidelity um, in their marriage. Right? Lust, though, is one that we automatically run to and we think um, uh, in the terms of a sexual nature. When in fact, lust here in this portion of scripture has the idea of people who are lost to shame. People who are lost to shame. Uh, they, are no, they no longer care what people think and they flaunt their sin openly and even proudly um, is what Paul is talking about. And so he gives us this list of things that you should not do and then he says uh, the, you need to put on the armor of light. Now that is related to whom? The armor of light is related to whom? Christ, right? So when we put on Christ, we are to put on the armor of God and then we are both equipped to defend but also attack. But putting on Christ, in my opinion, is a, is a strong but yet very vivid metaphor. It means more um, than just put on the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, let Jesus Christ be the armor that you wear, is what Paul is saying. Let Jesus be the armor that you wear. Make no provision, let no room be given to the flesh. You know, the flesh will be as active as we allow it to be in our lives. It will be as active as we allow it to be. We have a work to do um, in this life and walking properly as in the day. And, and so it isn't as if Jesus does all of it for us as we sit back. But instead, he does it through us when we willingly and actively partner with, with the spirit that's within inside of us. And so God, um, God used this portion of scripture, and this is where I'm going to close, and we're going to move into the next thing. You know, God used this specific portion of scripture here at the end of, of Romans 13 to show St. Augustine, one of, the, one of the great theologians of the early church, that he really could live the Christian life empowered by the Holy Spirit, but he just had to do what he knew was right. He just had to do what he knew was right, and so do we. As Christians, we have to do what we know is, is right. 